0: welcome to the marxist think tank podcast an attempt to look at the world from a class conscious perspective and to build hello everyone and welcome to our six-month review of the russo-ukrainian war and the first thing i'm going to open and say is in war truth is the first casualty so um, welcome, Chris. Welcome, everyone. Hi, Rich. Good to see you, Chris. Yeah, just want to open it with that line because we've taken up, uh, we've, we've picked a big topic to cover yeah. six months of war uh, involving tens of thousands of people, millions of uh, refugees, uh, almost every nation in the world, not every nation, but, you know, Europe, the US, NATO, China, Russia, all involved. So there's lots of information to process. We'll try to do our best. Um, but yeah, we're gonna try and give a six month review of the war. I would actually first like to say that we actually are a little bit late. Um, the six-month point um would have has already passed, so we're a few weeks behind. But I think it's actually added um, some advantage to our six-month review because everyone else missed the um this amazing offensive uh, that everyone's been talking about in uh, in Kiev up in the north of Ukraine. But um before I get ahead of myself, that's today. Let's let's uh let's see what Chris what, what do you want to say about first thing that you want to cover in terms of the six-month review yeah so i think i, th- I think that quote
1: that you just gave is absolutely perfect for this um mm-hmm. obviously everything that we've heard has been, there's been so much disinformation that has actually been spread throughout the course of the war um if you remember at the beginning the first sort of hero of this war was the ghost of kiev which everybody was adamant was a real figure of course it turned out that it wasn't we had news reports of cities being liberated that turned out to be cities that only existed in video games I think it just shows that the average person didn't even really even know where Ukraine was at the beginning of this This is the the entire situation has, the media have been using the fact that the public are completely uneducated about the subject to their benefit and unfortunately it's worked tremendously the same thing that they did Mm. with Iraq and the same thing that they'll do with the next war It's the tried and true method.
0: Absolutely, mate. Absolutely. Actually, um, if, if I can take the, uh, the liberty of just jumping in with something, uh, which doesn't, well, it relates very much to the war, but isn't what's happened in the last six months. But because we did an episode on Gorbachev um, two weeks ago and talking about his legacy, um, somewhere I read that Gorbachev was uh, contesting this idea that uh, NATO had promised uh, not to expand and not one step east of, of Germany or Berlin. Um, and apparently, this idea has been contested. That uh, no, that was never promised. So I'm not going to read the entire document here, but um, I will tell people to go onto um, it's a university website. So this is from the um, <clears throat> from the uh, George Washington University. So uh, the National Security Archive at George Washington University. So nsarchive.gw edu. So ns edu, And you can see a whole bunch of documents on you. So I'm going to share it quickly for us to look at. Um, but the idea that there was no assurance that it's all made up by Putin, that, uh, you know, that's all false, that that's just propaganda, is um, at least from this academic source, so from the university, I an mean, American university, bear in mind, um, they document not just the conversations between Baker and and um, other Soviet sort of uh, leadership, as well as Gorbachev. It, it talks about assurances from the Germans, um, about reunification. Uh, you can see here some handwritten notes um, from uh, Stepanov meladov's notes from a meeting reflecting Baker's assurance to Shevardnadze during uh, the Ottawa Open Skies conference. Uh, And if NATO stays, uh, and if and if united, etc. Quote. And if a united Germany stays in NATO, we should take care about non-expansion of its jurisdiction to the east. But obviously, that's just a a minor note. There's way more here, and again, I can't cover it all today. We can't cover all of this. Maybe we can make a special episode on this. But it documents meetings between Robert Gates, Gorbachev, other Western leaders, uh, the West German Foreign Minister Hans Dietrich Genscher. Uh, talking about way more conversations and assurances about not having NATO expansion go to the east. So I invite people to read that themselves and take a look at the historical facts regarding that. So, yeah, I just want to put that up because, of course, this war is completely tied up with the question of NATO and NATO expansion. That's um, very much what's going on now. But, um, yeah, Chris, what what do you want to go into first?
1: Yeah. So just whilst you're on that, I've actually got a little clip that sort of complements that. Uh, if you could pull it up, it's, I've listed that as Biden. Uh, so this is a little clip from 1997, where Senator Biden mm-hmm. um, makes that exact point that the thing that would cause a conflict with Russia would be the expansion of NATO into former Soviet territories. Uh, I find this quite yeah. interesting because, obviously, Senator Biden seems to be a much smarter man than this new President Biden we seem to have at the moment. Um I can only assume that the flip flop is disingenuous as it tends to be. I don't think he's forgot. I think he knows full well what he's that he's reversed his position. I was just hoping that nobody else remembers.
0: Sure. Uh, I'll play it. Give me a moment. Here we go. We got it here. I think the one
2: place where the greatest consternation would be caused in the short term for admission, having nothing to do with the merit and preparedness of the country to come in, would be to admit the Baltic states now in terms of NATO-Russian, U.S.-Russian relations. And if there was ever anything that was going to tip the balance, were it to be tipped in terms of a vigorous and hostile reaction – I don't mean military – in Russia, it would be that. So the way I look at the calculus here is that.
3: I- so we knew then that admitting Baltic states into the NATO would tip the
1: balance and cause an aggressive response from Russia. So it is, in my opinion, disingenuous for them to act surprised now and act like it is unreasonable or Russia's imagining a threat that isn't there by mm. them moving NATO borders. Russia, as mm. NATO, as we both know, is a no-Russia club. That's what it always was. I mean, Russia have pointed this out with their actions in the past by applying for membership. Stalin applied for membership into NATO. Putin applied twice. Um, obviously, they knew that they weren't going to be admitted because they knew the nature of NATO. This is... Mm-hmm. This is uh, a black man trying to get into the kkk it's, mm. it's, this is exactly yeah the, no the, i mean musicians have been made to counter them and but they adamantly say no we are not an anti-russia club we're just there for protection but from what
0: <laughs> yeah and then why would you let us join then if we're not an anti russia club but yeah yeah you not deserve protection <laughs> yes so i think um we, we have I've got to be careful not to repeat all of the things that we might have said a few months ago yes. when we started talking about the war uh, and and all that. So what we will do, since this is a six month review, I have found a nice uh, somewhat short recap of the war uh, with some images and stuff, and then we can stop and start uh, and cover some bits as we go along. It's, we're not going to go into every detail because obviously it is six months of war. There's been lots of battles and, and back and forth. Yeah. So uh, I'll um, I'll put up this one here from. This is from Al Jazeera. So this is uh, something they released at the six month point. Just a breakdown of where things have happened and, and sort of um, a key analysis on sort of where where the fighting was. Give me a moment. Um, here we go. Okay. So six months on Russia, Ukraine war mapped out. Okay. So obviously back in 2021, uh, there were the satellite images showing Russian troops gathering um, on the border, uh, lots of air, you know, vehicles stacked up. And uh, obviously, everyone knows, here's the map of what it looked like before, we've got Crimea down there, um, annexed in 2014. And we have then uh, the two breakaway republics, Donbas and LPR over here. And as you can see there, so the Donbas region, uh, sort of as recognized by Russia, I believe there's also, also a Ukrainian provincial, uh, you know, old, old borders. So that's what. Is considered the Donbass, and that's what the the, separatists, the guys who didn't agree with the EU Maidan coup in 2014. Where that's where they split away with uh, support from Russia. Um, yeah. But yeah, okay. So obviously, the prelude. We had all these images back in November last year of Russian vehicles gathering in, in Belarus and uh, Belarus and Russia as well. Um, and remember, back then we also had those uh, meetings with with uh, old um, what's his name. French guy. (laughs) I've gone blank. Um, Macron. Macron and the long table and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, let's just go straight to it then. Uh, On February 24th, following a televised speech by Russian President Vladimir Putin in which he announced a special military operation, Russian ground forces invaded Ukraine from four main points, from the north, from the northeast, from the east, and from the south. And you can see here that map of those different directions where they entered from Crimea, uh, the east, and then up from the north too. Okay. Explosions were heard across the country, with Russian artillery and missiles hitting numerous targets. Kiev declared martial law and said Ukraine would defend itself. Quick gains, one month into war. In the first weeks of the invasion, Russian troops pressed towards Ukraine's largest cities, including Kiev, Kharkov, and Kherson, but they faced stiff resistance from Ukrainian forces. The city of Kherson in the south was the first key urban center to fall on March 2nd, just one week after the invasion began. About the same time in eastern Ukraine, Russian forces seized Europe's largest nuclear power plant, Zaporizhia. On March 4th, a fire broke out during the shelling of the power plant, raising fears of a nuclear disaster in Europe." I think there's an interesting thing to talk about that. Maybe we'll come back to that one later about Zaporizhia and uh, this fear of it, of it uh, you know, having a, some sort of nuclear meltdown. Um, but yeah, another map here, March 2nd, 8th, 16th, and 23rd. Um, so I've got a nice video here, which I'm just going to share, of a sort of an estimate of how many different um, vehicles and troops each side had. So uh, at the start, okay, according to um, this channel from YouTube, which makes pretty good documentaries like Kings and Generals. One second, I'm going to share this now. Um, But one thing I'd like to mention about this is that after 2014, Ukraine is sort of has all these advisors and all this training, so it does change from the army it was in 2014. It is a a NATO supported, not NATO trained army, (laughs) Um, you know, after after two thousand and fifteen, pretty much. Um, yeah. Uh, okay, here we go.
4: Allows us to estimate that one thousand two hundred tanks and four thousand eight hundred to eight thousand four hundred other armored vehicles are being used in the Russian Expeditionary Force if all BTGs are equipped by the book, which is rarely the case, especially in an army known for vast corruption and poor administration. According to the ISS military balance, Russia possesses 1,391 military aircraft and 544 attack helicopters, but it is impossible to know how many of them Russia is exactly using in the war in Ukraine. The same source shows that Ukraine has active personnel of approximately 200,000 troops, more than 3,000 armored vehicles, 132 military aircraft, and 55 helicopters. Since Ukraine has declared general mobilization and armed volunteer territorial defense, we could assume the actual number of people resisting the invasion is way higher. Moreover, thousands of volunteers joined Ukraine's international brigade, while talking about the comparison of forces, it is necessary to note that the Ukrainian army has come a long way since 2014. The army has been significantly. Yeah, um, so that's just a, an estimate of
0: what was there at the start in 24th yeah. of Feb on the 24th of Feb. Uh, any comments so far, Chris?
1: Um, yeah. So obviously, even since beginning of the year, obviously what. You could have started with at the beginning of the year would have been their old effectively russian inspired tech um a lot of it would have been using the same cartridges as russia um as soon as they started getting shipments from the west a lot of that was there useless because then they've got to swapped to guns that fire nato rounds instead of um all soviet rounds
3: mm-hmm.
1: um Obviously, we, we could have done, if if we had the time and the inclination to, uh, we could have gathered all these news articles of every time a country pledges equipment and sort of calculated, added them all up to try and have a rough estimate. Um, mm. But That's really all we could have done because Ukraine don't sort of say what they have now. Nobody sort of points out what Ukraine have received. Mm. Um, mm. All we have a lot of the time is a sort of anecdote of frontline troops saying we've the, the weaponry are going to certain classes of, of Ukrainian soldiers and the main grunts and conscripts are getting left with old sort of crap equipment, um, yeah. which you can kind of, from a military standpoint, you can understand because modern weaponry, yeah. this is why conscripts don't really work in modern war because conscripts yeah. aren't military educated. You need usually advanced training to fire advanced weaponry. You can't just pick up and fire a javelin. Like right. you could in sort of World War II where you can give frontline civilians defending your city um, handheld bazookas that fire one pop shots to blow up a tank, and that, that's it. All you do is point and fire.
3: <laughs> modern
1: modern equipment's a bit more technically savvy than that.
0: Right, 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 right. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think I want to say there was. Uh, it talks about the international brigades, which uh, I think is quite a perverse term if you consider. <laughs> The, almost sort of how similar it sounds to the Spanish brigades, the international brigades during the Spanish civil war, which were fighting against, uh, you know, uh, Franco and the fascists, um, well, because yeah. a, lot of these, a lot of the characters that ended up going, I mean, obviously there's different types of people that went lots of different. I'm not, they're all, they're yeah. not all the same, but some of them were definitely, you know, far right, uh, guys with all sorts of neo-Nazis or fascist kind of tattoos, swastikas mm. and all that stuff. Um, there's a lot of really unsavoury characters that joined these units, and also there was a lot of reports and stories about, uh, particularly earlier on in the war, um, them going there and being treated as cannon fodder. So them being told, "Here's a gun, you're going to the front, mate. We, we don't really care." Like, you know, it's quite expendable. Um, and and reports of them also, um, you know, uh, there was that big strike where they were all blown up in some training facility um, right. in Ukraine right. uh, by a Russian strike, and and and. And uh, there was an American soldier, well, ex a retired soldier who had served in Afghanistan. And he gave a report where he talked about how different this was to um, what he'd done in Afghanistan. So he'd been used to fighting an, with a NATO army where you're fighting against, um, you know, a farmers, uh, Afghan farmers, basically with old AK-47s from perhaps 40, 50-year-old weapons. Yeah. Um, they have no air support. They have no artillery. Uh, and he's used to having... And he was used to having that sort of support, you know, helicopters and Apaches and armored vehicles and medevacs and uh, rations. <laughs> and uh, he said that this war was completely different. I think that's an important point to make. Um, obviously, there has been war in Syria and Afghanistan and Iraq, um, and I don't think that we should sort of understate that those are, you know, those weren't wars. Um, but I do also think that. This war is different in the sense that you're talking about a NATO, a fully NATO-equipped army, almost yeah, fully NATO. Yeah, you're talking about a full modern war, a state versus state conflict, yeah. Um, yeah. Or, or not peer to peer, but with NATO. Yeah, yeah. So th- in that sense, this is different. Um, yeah, yeah. Not to take away from any of the other wars and terrible things that were happening in the last 30 years, but yeah. Obviously, with what
1: you just said about Syria and the mercenaries, it's interesting that. Um, if a few months back do you remember where one of the mercenaries was captured and i believe the british journalist graham phillips um who yeah. has since been sanctioned for doing the yeah. interview uh, because they said yeah. it broke to the convention he interviewed that man who's been sentenced to death in the dnr yeah. Um, yeah. 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 that man who was interviewed before he enlisted in syria in ukraine sorry i believe he's been in, in some sort of degree of mercenary battalion in Ukraine for the past couple of years. But before that, he was in Syria.
0: He was in Syria, yeah.
1: Working, fighting with the YPG. So it's interesting that sort of makeup of these mercenary Mm -hmm. groups having this traditional far-right nationalists, Nazi Mm -hmm. characters, but also Mm -hmm. these wishy-washy libertarian, anarchist, socialist types, with yes. <laughs> yes.
0: Yeah. 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 Have, um,
1: um, fighting alongside fascists in Ukraine.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. The, the war has also it has dragged up some odd characters from, it, it, like you said, the, the, that specific soldier he'd fought with, um, it, yeah, in, in Syria, then gone to Ukraine. And when they interviewed him, he was like, "Oh, I I didn't know they were, you know, I didn't know they were so uh, right wing. I didn't know they were so uh, intense. <laughs> um, I had no idea. I was just there, and mm-hmm. I was just there with my mortar, and I, I don't know. I don't know." So yeah um yeah things have been it seems that to,
3: with.
1: there seems to be a lot of obviously denial mm. about that um mm. obviously uh yourself and, and, and me have been talking about these sort of issues in ukraine and the right-wing turn since the coup since 2014 <clears throat> as of many mm. people on the left and we've consecutively been told we're conspiracy theorists we're wrong mm. the mm. Ukraine just has just as many Nazis as everywhere else. It's like, well, that's not the point of how many there are. It's the disproportionate amount of political clout they've managed to achieve with such small numbers. That's yeah. what's unusual in this situation.
3: Yeah, um, yeah,
0: yeah, definitely. I mean, the Azov unit, you know, I mean, we spoke uh, quite a lot about Azov before, and I, I think people probably know about Azov now. And there's been all yeah. these follow on stories where a shooting happens elsewhere in the world and they find that the guy has got the Black Sun tattoo over here or was wearing the Black Sun tattoo. And it does make a lot of really awkward um, yes. news for for this war, for, for, for particularly if they're trying, anyone who's trying to drive the Ukrainian narrative and undermine, oh, sort, of, sort of quiet down this idea that there's right-wing uh, neo-Nazis or neo-fascists in there. Um, yes. th- th- in this uh, particular documentary that we're watching now, we just got the numbers from, um, they talk about the, one of the right sector militias and um, if you're tired of reading about Azov, uh, read about the right sector. That's another one of the right-wing uh, militias. And that also is from a political party that had a seat after 2014, only one seat. But still, they merged, just like Azov did, into the um, you know, into the yeah. military, uh, the defense forces of Ukraine. Um, so, yeah. Again, though, I do want to mention that, of course, we've got, we got to caveat this a bit, that obviously, uh, and we've said this before, not the entire Ukrainian army is fascist and right wing there's just an no. unacceptable amount of them and units where the ideology is open the ideology of bandera and banderism is, is there um yeah yeah
1: and it's interesting how much zelensky and his apologists deny it now because obviously the west wants to betray um ukraine as somehow a european style liberal democracy loving state mm. and mm. It's not the case. And mm. I, I saw not too long ago a uh, a LGBT group to LGBTs for, for Ukraine acting like Ukraine are, are pro-LGBT. I'm so, like, do you want to yeah. see what happened last time there was a gay rights parade in Kiev?
3: Mm. <laughs> so mm. It's,
1: it's mm. a pretty conservative Eastern European mm. society. Mm. It's, it's culturally very similar to Russia, not
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I do have here. Um, I don't yeah. know if you fancy. I know you've not seen this, so I'm quite excited to get your reaction. No,
0: no, I, I like the so, surprise.
1: Obviously, we know Zelensky. Uh, he was a comedian back in the day, so I've got a, a clip here. It's only a minute long, um, but it's very telling. So this particular routine that he's doing is he's playing the character of a soldier for, fighting for the Ukraine army in the Donetsk.
0: Okay, Not this is obviously know. before this is 2014 before he was president, right?
1: Yeah, but during the civil war. Sure, uh, so
0: okay, sorry. I'll prove it.
5: Здравствуйте! Дядя Игорь, дядя Вали, дядя Саш. Вопреки вашим опасениям сообщаю, что живу я хорошо. Пока живу. Дальше будет еще лучше, потому что уже три недели, как я принят, в Бандеровце. А как иначе? Иначе у нас в Украине карьеры не сделать. Хотя что я вам рассказываю, вы и так все знаете. Зарплата у меня маленькая, но это не главное. Ведь нам разрешили отбирать деньги и имущество у русских. Раньше можно было и у евреев. Но потом пришел главный бандеровец Коломойский и запретил. Я, например, сейчас учу английский язык, чтобы забыть русский. В этом мне помогают американские наемники, которые у нас тут на каждом шагу. Я женился во второй раз на Вадике. Для нас, европейцев, это нормально. Сегодня наш президент, ну, самый главный, который у нас самый главный президент, Барак Обама, Обещал, что мы скоро вступим в НАТО, пока, естественно, на правах американского прихвостня. Если есть возможность, друзья, вышлите, пожалуйста, мне книгу Гитлера «Майн а то у нас разметают. Бывало, утром выхожу на балкон и начинаю делать зарядку. От сердца к солнцу, вот так.
0: Wow. Okay, there's there's quite a lot to to digest with that. There is the If you're not watching this, and you're listening to this as a, as a podcast, whatever. Um, go and find that. It's uh, just Google uh, Zelensky comedy sketch uh, where he does the Hitler salute and talks about being a Banderite, right? yeah. uh, because there's a lot. There's I a mean, the Jewish reference, a reference to gay people, a reference to being American mercenaries, a reference to being uh, henchmen henchman against NATO, about robbing from Jews, about robbing from Russians. I mean, it's a comedy sketch, so I guess you know it, there's a yeah, poet's lesson.
1: Really telling the fact that the audience are in stitches shows to me that what he's telling, what he's joking about, they already knew. It was an open Mm -hmm. secret back in 2014 that -hmm. particularly amongst Mm -hmm. these armed forces, there's a right wing to the fact that you could joke about Mein Kampf being sold out and the audience are in stitches like that. Obviously, if if you said that in a British club to a British audience, there wouldn't be much of a laugh because they'd be like, what are you talking about? There isn't that phenomenon in the UK at the moment of Mein Kampf. Like, you can't even, Mein Kampf in a British bookshop is a special
0: order. (laughs) Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a pretty disturbing clip. I mean, it's it also a little bit of a scary reflection on, on yeah Ukrainian society at the time as to how they see things and how they feel about things and how they feel about Bandera and the past and and, and yeah. fascism. Um, yeah, that's pretty, pretty, pretty. We
1: definitely knew back then. And it's honestly mm. pretty telling now that he pretends not to.
0: Mm. <laughs> mm, 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 mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know if you want to return to the timeline. So obviously I think we've we've obviously just gone back to talk about the political yeah. situation around the war and around sort of certain units, uh, yeah. out of and um, right sector and stuff. Um, but we did get to the point of, of, of the start of the war. So I was going to go back to that document from, um, yeah, from Al Jazeera, uh, and then we can just go along. Um, I'll, I'll actually play there's a nice video here where they show, um, just a fast forward of the war of the, of the fighting in general as it's back and forth. Um, one second, where's it gone? Down the bottom here, and you can see basically the movements on the map. Um, and How it goes along. I'll find that in a moment. Let me just go back to where we were. Sorry. So yeah, um, yes, we were over here. Okay. So, so in the first five weeks of the invasion, Russian troops pressed towards Ukraine's largest cities, Kiev, Kharkov, and Kherson, but faced a stiff resistance. Um, Kherson fell first on March second, uh, and then obviously Zaporizhia, the nuclear power plant, on March fourth. And then, despite some victories in the early days of the war, Russian forces were unable to gain control of Ukraine's capital, Kiev, as they faced logistical challenges with ground forces, unable to move fuel, munitions, and material because of clogged roads. Satellite images showed a 40-kilometer Russian convoy stalled outside the capital. So I actually wanted to quickly talk about this one, because um, in uh, the video that we saw that I shared of kings and generals, they note and they you know, declare and confirm that Zelensky had been offered um, a ride out of Kiev by the Americans, and he famously says, no, I don't need a ride out, I need ammunition. Um, And we talked about this 40 kilometer or 65 kilometer long stack of uh, Russian armor. Um, And considering how close it is to Belarus and their supplies, I do find that this idea of them running out of petrol and munitions a bit, um, I don't know if I, I believe this that much. But what I I do believe is that at this time, you could tell the Ukrainians had no control over their airspace. If you had this big of a target, it would have been hit. Um, But this is my speculation, this part, I I do think that this was left here as a threat that we can do this, look how much stuff we have, with the expectation that they would have uh, surrendered or Zelensky would have left, or this whole transitional thing that I do think there was some plan from the, the Russian side. In the early stages of the of the fighting, that they thought the government was going to collapse. I I don't know. History will have to tell us sort of the full story of what what the plan was there. Um, but my opinion is that that stack of armor was a hammer in their hands, mm-hmm. in means to put pressure for them to resign, as in the Ukrainian government to resign. That's my opinion. I'll have to see what what happens. You know, once we know more, uh, two, five, ten years from now. Um, but that's my opinion on that one.
3: Yeah, you no,
1: I, I think you're probably right there. It seems more of an aggressive gesture than an actual mm. serious move. Obviously, yeah. even at this point um, during the war where we are discussing right now, um, it was obvious that this war is going to play out very differently to how we've seen Russia fight in the past compared to how they took Aleppo mm. with the, the Syrian army. Uh, yeah. The Russia's main tool for taking a city's air force uh and that's something that we've just not seen very much of at all in this war and it's been quite strikingly absent through the whole yeah point. to the point where every time something happens where obviously we're going to just get to the present very shortly um mm. but it always seems like that this is going to be the logical next step of okay mm. if the conference <laughs> is going to accelerate into its next step it is but it's, it's a very destructive step to take obviously if you want to do yeah. these and win hearts and minds.
0: Yeah. 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 I think a way to do that. Yeah. I, I was listening to, um, an American general, which I'll play some clips from later talking about things that surprised him. And he did talk about this too. The fact that the Russian air force, we saw the numbers there, the huge air force. Um, and it has not been brought to bear on, uh, Ukraine. And there's different accounts as to why I think no one can give a clear answer yet. It's, 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 it's on from the American side, this general claims that they're just too scared. They don't know how to fight like that. They've never had to do that kind of operation like the Americans did in, in Kuwait in 91. Um, so that was his understanding. Um, I think perhaps you could also look at it from the idea of being a special military operation, that uh, deploying the entirety of the Air Force, as well as even more troops, then makes it sound more like a war if Putin is set on framing this as a special military operation, that employing more and more stuff makes it not seem like a small military operation or special military operation. Obviously, I'm
1: not an expert on uh, Russian legislation, Um, but in terms of the difference between a war and a special military operation, a war is an actual, has a legal precedent, and it gives you legal powers. With this special operation, he can't Utilize the full might in the same way that a war could, particularly on conscription. Uh, yeah, that's often been something that's been hypothesized in the media that if he was now to declare war, he'd be able to then basically right. conscript more troops.
0: Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. And that that is um, one of the oddities of this war is that Ukraine has done the full mobilization and Russia hasn't. So mm. even though Russia is a much bigger country. Ukraine actually has more manpower to draw from at this time because they've mobilized. Um, And then they're being armed by the West. So yeah, uh, we'll have to see again, this is one of the ones that I don't think we can answer right now. I don't think anyone can answer right now as to why um, the Russian Air Force has not been used to its fullest extent. Um, Is it a problem that they don't know how to? That's apparently one view. Is it because it's not um, something they can do because of the frames, the legal frames of being a special military operation? I don't know. Um, But let's just move along. Yeah, then obviously brings up this war crimes and Butcher stuff. I think you want to talk about this specifically. So should we come back to this later?
1: Um, so, so just to carry on in, in a sort of chronological order, should we just dip okay. into it, dip into it yeah, now? Go ahead. Go ahead, go ahead. So, yeah. sort of what's going on at the moment in the news anyway.
0: Okay. I'll read this and then we can give you a yeah. piece. So war crimes and Butcher. Butcher on the outskirts of Kiev became a strategic base for Russia's attempt to advance towards the capital. However, after Russia's withdrawal... Residents of these cities returned home and witnesses gave accounts of alleged war crimes. Days after Russian forces left Bucha, Human Rights Watch researchers visited the town and found extensive evidence indicating unlawful killings, torture, executions, and forced disappearances all over which point to war crimes. According to Richard Weir, a crisis and conflict researcher at HRW, evidence indicates that Russian forces occupying Bucha showed contempt and disregard for civilian life and the most fundamental principles of the laws of the war. Uh, go ahead. What, what do you think then, Chris? What are your thoughts on this?
1: Right. So obviously in the east of Ukraine, um, as we've discussed in the put, it's a large proportion of the population are Russia, are are mm. Russian nationals. Not mm. Rus- ethnically Russian, sorry. Now mm. throughout this, this conflict, Russia one thing that Ukraine police have been really paranoid about is internal traitors. There's been reports wherever Russia has occupied of when they put up humanitarian aid stations and now going down the line uh passport stations to give people russian passports when those areas fall back into ukrainian hands these anyone who was doing business with the russians taking aid from the russians or handing information to saboteurs have been what the ukrainians have classed as on their websites liquefied liquefied is a terrifying statement because it, it It can be anything from arresting, driving up to shooting against a wall. Um, Yeah. It does seem to me that this very well may be what happened here. Now, in terms of the actual timeline here, so Russia left Uka on the 31st of March. Um, On the 1st of April, the city council posted a video. The mayor came out saying the city was liberated. Uh, But then later in the day, Ukraine central command said there's no evidence that Russia have left the area. And that's when we saw videos of them shelling Bruker. So Ukraine was shelling a city that the mayor had already announced on social media, Russians have left. Ukraine, central Ukraine, said no, we've got no proof. we are carry on bombing. Um, So on the first they moved in, it was only on the third reports of killing. So for those three days, there was no reports of these massacres when you look at the actual mm-hmm. pictures that are shown to us i think you just showed one in that clip there's bodies yeah. everywhere how can you not notice these bodies everywhere for three days
0: mm-hmm. right right yeah yeah,
1: yeah. and are literally in the street and yeah. certain areas in the what look like do look some of them do look like executions there are p- pictures where you'll see people with their hands tied and their shirts pulled up yeah so, to me, there isn't a question that there has been executions. The question is, who perpetrated it? I think it is yeah. unbelievable to me that nobody noticed these bodies everywhere for three days. Mm-hmm. The fact were shelling by Ukraine in the meantime. Mm-hmm. There's a of these people having on their corpses Russian rations. You're not going to feed people your ration packs if you're going to shoot them. But I yeah. completely can't believe that Ukraine secrets police would have killed people who they found have been taking Russians off the Russians, because they would have assumed yeah. the saboteurs.
0: Right, right, yeah. And also, I think, so this whole thing with with, with war crimes, and um, there's obviously more than one, Bucha, and there's this one that's just come out uh, yesterday or the day before, which we can come to later. Um, there will be allegations and counter-allegations, uh, and it's going to be, as we started, at, as we said at the start, um, truth is the, the first casualty of war. Yes. So I think the, the point I want to make on this one is about uh, Amnesty. Uh, Amnesty also released this statement, um, which uh, caused a lot of uh, upheaval. Uh, I'll read it for you guys here. I'll show it to you. Um, basically saying that the Ukrainians uh, had been using civilian sites uh, to you know, keep troops. So using human shields, basically. So let's get out view here. Here we go. So Ukrainian. This is from Amnesty International. So the Ukrainian forces uh, set military bases up in residential areas, including schools and hospitals. Uh, attacks launched from populated civilian areas, and uh, of course they do say that it doesn't justify any of Russia's attacks. Um, but they do. They, they don't uh, mince their words. Um, they say Ukrainian forces have put civilians in harm's ways by harm's way by establishing bases and operating weapon systems in populated residential areas. Including schools and hospitals, and it goes on quite there. So I'd read people to go, I invite people to go and read uh, the, you know, the full document of what Amnesty says, and that causes a huge upheaval because, yeah. of course, this doesn't play very well to the narratives uh, of NATO and the West. If we're arming and sending weapons and sending money um, to Ukraine, and they're doing this stuff, then it doesn't—it's it's not something that like, people would like to hear or to like to be paying for, <laughs> particularly in an energy crisis. Just on one thing, so I, I forgot to mention this earlier. Um, on the funding side of things, a few months ago. So never mind the money that was just released uh, last week or two weeks ago, or whichever new arms shipment. Um, at some point in the halfway through the war, uh, halfway through the sort of three months into the war, um, you, the Ukraine had already received the equivalent of the Russia's and Russians' entire military annual budget uh, from the US in some shape or form. Um, so. They've already had enough money to basically pay for an entire Russian uh, military. Uh, that just shows you the yeah. scale of support. And also, I mean, on, on another token, um, while you've got sort of brown water coming out of types, taps in America and uh, homelessness in the streets and stuff, the American government has the money to pay for an entire uh, year's worth of Russian military. Um, yeah. Extra. Flying around, just just spare yeah. cash. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, that shows you how much money the U.S. does have um, to, yeah. to throw, play around and throw around in, in international affairs.
1: Um, yeah, yeah, I think it's it's a sort of, you have to read between the lines, but this has never been said that this is a donation. This is very much a lend-lease, like what the Americans did to Britain during World War II, where they gave us as many weapons as we can, said, oh, well, don't worry, pay us later. But that later does come. And in the case of Britain after World War II, it came very quickly after the war, where Russia said America said, sorry, okay, now is the time to pay up. And we ended up having to basically yeah. give America the right to trade throughout our colonies in dollars instead of pounds sterling, which is basically what sunset the empire. Yes. Ukraine is going to have yeah. that come bite, bite them in, in the ass quite quickly at, after this ends when America say, okay, now pay up. You owe us quite a lot of money. <laughs>
0: Yeah. 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 (laughs) Just a bit. Um, I just wanted to jump uh, another one. Sorry, because we have, we are covering the human rights stuff. So let's go into it. Um, Trump, obviously, when he was in power, sanctioned the ICC, the international criminal court after they suggested that they were going to investigate American soldiers, uh, and their crimes in Afghanistan and Iraq and perhaps elsewhere. Um, they were sanctioned by his administration. Um, So if we're talking about the ICC being allowed to uh, operate and investigate who they choose, whether that's Russia for potential crimes performed by them, or whether that's Ukraine for potential crimes performed by them. um, That's quite important to this investigation if we want to see what really happened here. Um, But I'll bear in mind that even though uh, Biden has now uh, released uh, and sort of taken away, sorry, returned, uh, repealed, let's say, uh, the Sanctions against the ICC staff that they sanctioned, that Trump sanctioned, um, there's still an interesting statement here from the Washington Post, which they share. So um, that the Secretary of State of Ankita, Blinken made clear on Friday's announcement that the United States maintains its longstanding objection to ICC efforts to investigate non-members. Uh, but Blinken also said the administration's concerns about these cases would be better addressed through engagements with all stakeholders in the ICC process. Um, so key point there is that. The U.S. is not a signatory, and neither is Israel. So, I, I do think that we have to be very sceptical about how, uh, to what extent, the ICC will be allowed to investigate Ukraine in the future. If it's, uh, if you know, if they don't sign up, or...
1: either is Russia. Uh,
0: I, I think you might be right. I'm not sure to be honest.
1: <laughs> I believe so because I believe uh, his name's gone the foreign minister of Russia uh, when the mm-hmm. accusations about uh, butcher massacre and the initial. Uh, Russia needs is going to be reported to the ICC, where they pointed out, well, we're not a signatory of them, so uh, <laughs> they've got mm-hmm. no jurisdiction over it.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay, yeah, right, right. Okay, do you want to carry on with? Um, yeah, where we're, oh, yeah. Okay, so let's just head back to the map. So yes, now we're talking about butcher So we're at the butcher point of the, the war, still quite early on. Okay, so yes, second phase of the war. After Russia's failure to capture Kiev and the withdrawal of troops in the north of Ukraine, Russia focused on the Donbass and a push towards Mariupol in the second phase of the war. In late April, the Kremlin published a set of aims with four main goals. According to the Russian Ministry of Defense, Russia's military was to take over Donbass, create a land corridor from the region to Crimea, block Ukrainian Black Sea ports, take control of southern Ukraine to create a passageway to Transnistria. Um, there's a map there, of course, showing what's happening in April, uh, sort of push from Russia up to, up to the east, and a pullback in the north, so obviously pulling away from all the cities as i already mentioned. Okay, and then siege and fall of Mariupol. So early on, Mariupol was subject to Russia's relentless attacks, but it was also where Ukrainian tenacity was put on show. The port city was besieged in March with multiple failed attempts to create humanitarian corridors amid incessant shelling. I must actually correct um, this document. They were eventually created the humanitarian corridors, but um, carry on. Mariupol endured some of the most intensified during the war with a catalog of attacks from the bombing of a maternity hospital on March 9th to an air raid on the Donetsk Regional Drama Theater on March 16th. There's an image showing obviously the scale of fighting. Um, The Kremlin views the port city of Mariupol as a bridge to the Crimean Peninsula which Russia annexed in 2014. Aside from establishing a land corridor, Mariupol was also a key port, part of Russia's plans to put a stranglehold on Ukraine's economy. The city's port is a key export hub for Ukrainian corn, coal, and steel. For months, grain exports were halted until a Turkey and UN brokered deal last month allowed shipments to flow again from Black Sea ports. The Azov-style steelworks, one of the largest metallurgical plants in Europe, had been at the center of fighting in April and May. The complex was used as a shelter by Ukrainian forces and civilians. According to Ukrainian authorities, there were 1,000 civilians hiding at the plant at one point. Um, any comments on Azov style, Chris?
1: Um, obviously, this was something that we sort of concentrated quite a lot on back in the time. Um, I believe the humanitarian cra- corridor actually went to Russia, didn't it? A lot, a lot of them yeah. were arrested. Uh, mm. This, Obviously, the Azov Battalion, who we've, we've mentioned many times, they, they were the main... They identify, even on their website, as a national socialist movement. Hmm. Um, yeah, it's just amazing that the, how the West sort of PR managed to spin this, and even had the liberals in the West saying, oh, they're, they're good fighters, though, aren't they? <laughs> as, like, as if that
0: forgives everything yeah. else. These, these Nazis, they're really, really tough, yeah. aren't they? Yeah. 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 <laughs> I think something that I would like to comment here is that um, – if you take something like the Zaporizhia uh, power plant and Azov-style steelworks, um, these were both built during the Soviet times. And I've never ever heard any positive thing talking about the Soviet economy and its achievements from a Western source. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, you had these beautiful descriptions of Zaporizhia, the, the biggest nuclear power plant in Europe, and Azov-style steelworks, the, the, the greatest, most impressive steelworks you've ever seen. Um, yeah. You know, that this is not something you would ever hear. Uh, if if we were talking about economics of, of the Soviet Union and, and its achievements, um, you know, all of a sudden these things became these beautiful, uh, um, you know, uh, achievements. And also the same thing about people's homes and stuff. You know, people lived. The majority of people in in, in Ukraine live in Soviet housing. Yeah, totally. And uh, all of a sudden, you know, historically the descriptions of the Soviet Union this grey, drab, dreary place, horrible life, terrible homes. And now because the war is on, it's it's all very emotive and these beautiful yeah, the homes and beautiful, and- beautiful life. This beautiful yeah. country has been destroyed.
1: And I, I, on um, that yeah. note as well, we, we're in areas where you can see where these uh, big uh, brutalist coming blocks have been hit by artillery and only mm. the front's fall, fallen off them. It just goes to show how well these buildings were actually built that can survive this. <laughs> like my conservative roof nearly came off last time. It was windy <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and half these buildings pretty much look like they can just be repaired.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. Anyway, moving on to April. On April 21st, Putin ordered Russian forces to seal off Ukrainian fighters inside the city. Ukrainian fighters stayed inside the plant for more than 80 days, resisting Russian forces. However, in mid-May, approximately 1,700 Ukrainian soldiers surrendered, and at least a thousand were transferred to Russia, leading to the fall of Mariupol. So there you go. March 20th, they were encircling. April 20th, most of the city is taken, and you've got the cutoff with, uh, I believe that's the old port. Uh, and then you've got the, the plant, style. And then May 20th, it falls. Um, okay, then war at a deadlock. So despite Russia's reorientation of forces to the east of Ukraine, its offensive has appeared to gain little ground since May. A war of attrition has emerged as big tutorial advances have become less frequent, despite Russian forces claiming victory over the city of Lusachansk and overtaking the Luhansk region in early July. Much of the fighting in recent months has been concentrated in eastern and southern pockets of Ukraine around Kharkov, Severi Donetsk and Izum, as well as Mykolaiv, Kherson, and Zaporizhia were fighting near a nuclear power plant has renewed fears of a possible disaster. Ukrainian forces have tried to take back territory in Kherson, while Russian forces have attempted to advance in Donetsk. Russia's focus is now on the entirety of the Donetsk region the Donbass, which along with Luhansk was recognized as independent earlier this year. Russian officials have stated that their forces are fighting for the complete liberation of the Donbass. So there's some more map there. Um, I think we can skip this bit here so this is explosions across crimea so an air for an airfield was hit uh russian airfield um and they blew up a lot of planes uh, and that was in crimea which is quite quite a shock button
1: as you'd expect really like
0: yeah i'm almost
1: surprised it took ukraine this long to realize that hitting airfields is probably a good strategic decision to do
0: yeah yeah um so let's just jump ahead so obviously refugee movements Uh, So the UN Refugee Agency, UNHCR, says that there are more than 6.6 million refugees across Europe and some 7 million internally displaced within Ukraine. The US granted Ukraine the right to stay and work for up to three years in the 27 member state area. Okay, so obviously it's mostly women and children because the men have been told that they cannot leave, they have to fight. Um, And then since late February, the UN has recorded 11.1 million border crossings leaving Ukraine and 4.7 million crossings returning back into the country. And this obviously shows you where they've gone. So two point, nearly 2.2 2 million went to Russia, uh, around 17,000 to Belarus, 5.5 million rounding up here uh, into Poland, 700,000 to Slovakia, 1.2 million to Hungary, a million to Romania, half a million to Moldova. Um, so that's where they've gone apparently. I mean, obviously the ones that have gone to Poland and to the West, I imagine have also gone to Germany, France and the UK. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so that's that's Al Jazeera's uh, assessment. Obviously, they released this at the proper six-month point, so it doesn't include this amazing uh, counter-offensive that's happened in in, in, Kark- north of, in the north yeah. of the country. Um, I just wanted to mention, so, yeah, I'm not going to play this this map. We've we got an idea that basically the war, you know, you had the, the troops arrive in the north and the south and the east. That northern offensive has peeled back now, and the fighting is around... You know the Donbass, Luhansk, and Donetsk, and yeah. then holding that land bridge from Kherson all the way to Donbass.
1: And in our previous yeah. video, many, many months ago, uh, hmm. we 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 both said at the time that it felt like that initial um advance basically over hmm. the entire huge border, um, throughout Belarus and, and Russia, it was it did feel like a complete mistake because it, it was overreaching of what is mm.
3: effectively
1: an inexperienced land army. Um, yeah. I think they, were, yeah. they didn't realise the amount of troops Ukraine would be able to, to pull up and the equipment they'd be able to pull up in a quite short period of time. Uh, I think they did feel that Ukraine was going to roll over.
3: Mm-hmm. And it just didn't mm-hmm. happen
1: the way it did. Um, so I was, I was glad to see when russia said well we're going to refocus our efforts on on the goal which is donetsk and um yeah Kansk. yeah uh, so yeah we've to jump ahead now so where we are now obviously what's been missing from that yeah. article uh, the west's much praised counteroffensive which seems to have taken a few villages importantly mm-hmm. not militarily the russians have pulled back it's not as if, if all the russians have been killed there and russia ukraine have moved in
3: mm-hmm.
1: you, russia basically reforming our defensive line which almost suggests reading between lines again that the advancement has stopped now it's about consolidating the gains that they've got mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which they want to keep that land corridor through i did say in the last video that i believed that they were going to um, move south, south as far as odessa um that doesn't seem to have happened I think it not from like training um but it it wasn't important because now obviously they've made some sort of treaty via turkey or turkey or whatever they want to call themselves these days um to guarantee green export out so I think a lot of it was just security that that is being definitely used for grain and not for weapons
0: yeah right 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 yeah um I don't, yeah, I think this whole idea of Odessa, the the advance to Odessa. So uh, uh, there was a, a general, a Russian general, who did announce that there was a plan to get north of Mikolaev and meet up with Transnistria and uh, and uh, and then take the entire coast. Um, yeah. But I, I guess yeah. that hasn't happened. I don't think that's going to happen. Um, yeah, so this offensive that brings us to today, uh, uh, there's been two generals, so two, two American generals, uh, both retired, that have made... Uh, you know, comments and shared their thoughts on this counteroffensive um, That's just happened the person but more importantly, the northern offensive in in um, Kharkov, north of Kharkov. Um, and some of the stuff that they've been saying is, is quite wild. So I had watched a number of the six month reviews um, at the six month point, and they actually, some of them talk about stalemate, they say, Okay, this is it, the the cards are down. Um, and we're going to dig in for winter, basically, and, and we're not sure where this is going to go. And obviously, from the Ukrainian side, that's very dangerous because Europe uh, and, to an extent, America, we're going into winter, and this cost-of-living crisis is going to bite pockets, and people are going to start grumbling over why we're sending hundreds of millions or why we're sending whatever over to this war um, when our own people are suffering. So from the Ukrainian side, this Um, advance was very important for for political reasons, propaganda purposes. And also, I I must stress that I'm not going to say, oh, this this, this advance means nothing. Um, I think that this Oskil River that everyone's talking about, that they've been pushed back to the Oskil River, I think if they do go beyond that and take back actual parts of Lusuchansk, that would be uh, a significant problem for Russia because the stated aim of this war uh, is to help the DPR and LPR Um, So if they lose that territory, then I think they are losing one of their, you know, main uh, intended aims. Um, But I'll I'll play some of the stuff that this general has said. So um, the first general is called Lieutenant Hodges, and he is a um, quite a distinguished chap. So I'll let the um, this is all from a uh, from the UNC. I think the University of North Carolina interviewed him um, a few days ago, five days ago. Um, So let me just pull this up. And don't worry, we're not gonna watch the whole thing. <laughs> um, I've got some timestamps, so here we go.
5: Hodges has had a long and highly successful military career in the U.S. Army. He's a former commanding general of the U.S. Army Europe. He served in this role from 2014 to 2017. And prior to this ben helped senior or senior operational and staff positions in iraq afghanistan korea turkey and also with the supreme allied commander in brussels
0: okay so that's obviously his background i just want to give you his who this guy is so he was commanding european forces uh, obviously with nato but nato is the us effectively in my, my opinion um and was there until until twenty eighteen? So pretty recently. So he's pretty much aware of of capabilities and whatnot. So um, the uh, the interesting things that he says is basically I'm going to jump ahead to the now one second. I've got my timestamps here. Uh, yeah. So here we go. Three forty four. One moment. To the twenty three
2: February line by the end of this year and that they will reclaim Crimea next year and that they will have achieved their objectives of total restoration of Ukrainian sovereignty over all of their territory by next year.
0: Thoughts on that, Chris?
3: Okay, so this seems to be
1: um, American fan fiction, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I think what these generals sort of fail to recognise is that uh, Crimea did have a referendum to join Russia. Even if in this sort of fantasy parallel world where the Russian army just collapses and pulls back from Crimea, which they'd they'd get as much resistance at this point to taking Crimea as they would to taking St. Petersburg. There's been an incredible amount of russian investment um in crimea to integrate it fully into the russian federation they've built uh, a bridge from uh the caucasus into crimea which is something that has been talked about as a as a necessity since the since the 60s in the soviet union uh, but obviously it was never russia think of this as an integral part uh, mm. i think For them to even contemplate this would be incredibly stupid. Russia have said many times in their military doctrine, the only time they would ever use nuclear weapons would be if their territory was infringed to the point where the state is at risk. (laughs) Taking any territory from Russia would put the state at risk.
0: Yeah, and particularly Crimea, the, the Black Sea Fleet, Sevastopol. Yeah. And also, I mean, even if you go back in historical times, I mean, Peter the Great and the, the Crimean War. The uh, Crimean War, I mean, of this, this I mean, it, it blew me away when I heard this, that he thinks that the Ukrainians will, sure, let, let's give them the benefit of the doubt. Maybe they can push back to the 24th of Feb, um, where half of Donbass is still in yeah. the, the hands of, of, the, of the, the, the forces, the, the DPR, LPR. But the idea of them taking Crimea, I think this is wild. So he yes. says this, um I couldn't uh, even uh, Andreas, see the West that. Second sorry?
1: I couldn't even see the West supporting such a move. If Ukraine got to that position and said, right, we're gonna take Ukraine, Crimea back. I can't see the West supporting it. So they say that is a dangerous move to do.
0: Yeah. Because yeah. that
1: uh, you're gonna get an, a dangerous response.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Um I'll I'll play Petraeus later. Petraeus also has some interesting comments which he which he's he made uh, mm-hmm. regarding this too. So we'll jump again to the next bit. Um oh actually, sorry. On this point of taking Crimea, um, I do have here the statistics. So you mentioned the referendum, you re- mentioned um uh how much Russian you know, how much Russia wants and whole, uh, how important this is. Um, but we've also got here uh the statistics. So if you can see that there of the population, so the Crimean population. So 2001 population of Crimea, you had um, 1.5 or 1.4 million Russians. So 60.4% of the population was Russian. This is under a Ukrainian census. Yeah. And in 2014, uh, obviously Russian census, it's 65%. Uh, and so you can see from anyone's perspective that two thirds of this area, Crimea, is is Russian, ethnically Russian. So, and you add that onto all of the historical stuff we've talked about, whether it's the Black Sea Fleet and you know, the, the, Peter the Great and then Russia and Empire stuff. Um, it seemed wild that this guy thinks that yeah. they could take that and Russia would not. not
1: there to support
0: it. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. In terms of so, yeah. Tartars, I saw Tartars and that list. They are effectively yeah. um, swing voters in, in this sort of metaphor. They could go either way. Tatars, the majority of the time, when you speak to them, um, they don't seem to have a favorable view of Russia, but they don't seem to have a favorable view of Ukraine either. So yeah. I can't see them really siding with either in this in this case. Yeah.
0: yeah. So um, the other thing he says is that he, he says that uh, he does put a big if on all of this. He says um, they can do all of this. They can take Crimea and uh, Donbass and they can, uh, you know, bring... Christmas presents for everyone uh, if the west sticks together to the last uh you know if the west basically so this guy is actually talking more about politics so he's you can say, in my opinion these guys have yeah. been wheeled out following this offensive so that the narrative of this is a successful operation we must continue supporting it and must continue helping our partners and friends in NATO um that's I think more of the case of what his intention here is and what he's driving for here. Um, it seems crazy to make that a statement about Crimea as a military, um, analysis. If you see this as a political discussion that he's trying to get backing, uh, and, and keep the backing of the war high, then it makes more sense to me. It doesn't make sense as a military statement, um, that they could take Crimea. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. I'm gonna jump ahead to the next marker, which is over here. Uh,
2: these things and they don't have the system to do it at the same time the sanctions were having effect most of the precision weapons the the top quality weapons that the Russians use cruise missiles Iskander etc depend on imported components the Iskander itself 85 percent non-Russian components so uh, sanctions have prevented them from being able to replenish those losses. So, that's-
0: So yeah, this guy apparently, I mean, he's not wrong. I mean, there are lots of statistics which show that the Russians do import loads of chips. Um, however, I, I do think that having all of the preparation that Putin's already done in terms of he predicted the sanctions and therefore pulled up the reserves and the oil stuff and the gas stuff. And I highly doubt that they didn't think about what would happen if, if the war went on for a bit longer, if they needed more chips. And the Chinese can back them up a bit on this one. But it is an interesting point, though. And it'll be interesting to see if this point sticks true, if we see less and less of Iskander and other sort of these like, high high-tech weaponry, if they stop using them then I suppose we can know why, is that there is a chip shortage. Um, yeah. But that's his opinion, is that that these things will run out very soon.
1: I don't see that beyond too far beyond the pale of of uh, the imagination. Uh, they've recently, yeah. Russia started importing weapons from North Korea. And I can imagine that these sort of North Korean weapons, these will be very much uh, sort of manual weapons, not, not much high-tech Technology sort of integrated in, into it, so we, we may very well may see a lot of old style hmm. artillery being utilized. Um, yeah, obviously, it still works, you can still win a war with it,
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, also, yeah, I don't think that's the if, if this is going to go on for longer, then you're talking about a wartime economy, which other people have already reported that Russia is switching to that. That if they can make you know they they could find a way to make chips or import them from somewhere else that there is yeah. a, a possibility for that um but yeah it, it'll be interesting to see how that turns out um the next thing he says is about china which i think is quite uh telling again so i'll play this for you
2: so ships the chinese would have paid close attention uh to that as well mm-hmm. And you said you may, you expect a war with China in five years' time? Isn't this a right? I think I, I see the possibility of a kinetic conflict with China within the next five years. And I picked five years. I, I had said 10 years a few years ago. Uh, now I think it's uh, we're down to about five. And I base that on primarily, um, I think, President Xi himself, he's on the clock.
0: So um, I think that one's, uh, again, this has been stressed many times, that for America, this war with Russia is actually a pain in the ass and is not their main concern. Uh, If you had had this war not started, they could have just carried on with what they were doing with China, agitating around Taiwan and countering that whole Indo-Pacific stuff that they were doing with AUKUS and selling submarines and getting India on board and getting Australia on board and... And reconfiguring the space around around China to to, to, to curtail China. Um, so the fact that in this uh, conversation he has to bring in China um, that there'll be a war with China uh, just shows that that there really is this 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 need from uh, Western leaders and Western leaders to try and steer the ship yeah. uh, back to the bigger threat that they see. Um,
1: yeah, this is again this is the point that we made months ago that this conflict russia isn't the soviet union when it was the soviet union and uh the people's republic it was the soviet union was the was the bigger threat for the west russia isn't this doesn't equal that anymore the bigger threat to the west now is china russia is playing a second fiddle to that i think putin knows that. Put, what <laughs> it, it's, a, it's a rump state in 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 comparison to the Soviet Union, its economy has never managed to match what uh, the output of the Soviet Union, even in its dying days in the eighties. This is very Absolutely. much still about. That. And with what you've seen about chips, the majority of chips in the world are manufactured in Taiwan. And obviously, with what's right. going on there now, it's very easy for China to put that embargo around Taiwan, which would put the West in that exact same chip shortage that Russia now facing. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So the next part is, um, this one's quite, uh, (laughs) considering the year that we're in, so 2022, if you peel back the clock 100 years to 1921 and 1920, and and this Russian Civil War, and Mm -hmm. the intervention um, by America, Britain, uh, Japan, and all sorts of nations, imperialist Mm -hmm. nations back then, to try and carve up Russia, um, this general sees this war, uh, and this idea that Ukraine will push back, um, take Crimea and take everything else. He says it has the potential. He doesn't obviously say that it definitely will happen. He says that it could happen where they lose. And because of all these internal contradictions, I'll I'll play the clip. Um, Yeah, it's pretty, pretty, pretty uh, reminiscent of stuff that was being discussed a hundred years ago.
2: You mentioned how you think essentially Russia is falling apart. So with that, Ray would like to know, Um, He said that this British PM, Gordon Brown, suggested some type of Marshall plan for a defeated Russia, um, and he wants to know, what do you think of that strategy? Well, I think uh, most of Europe, um, well, not just Europe. You think about Russia, you know, gigantic landmass, not a population that's proportional to that landmass, but still 140-something million people, Um, endless amounts of of resources, um, all sorts of internal frictions and challenges that um, um, have been suppressed over the centuries by, uh, again, the czars or the Soviet Union, people like Stalin or now Putin. Um, It's in our interest that Somehow, uh, if there is a breakup or a balkanization, if you will, of it's the, wedge the Russian Federation, <laughs> that we've thought through, what happens to all those nuclear weapons? What happens to the uh, all the energy infrastructure? Uh, what happens to the refugees? The, the trillions of dollars of assets that are in banks and real estate all around the world? What what happens? Oh, he's salivating at the mouth.
0: <laughs> yeah, right. So, I mean, you can see he's being very careful with his words. Um, yeah, you know, the, Apart European the, the, yeah, the Europeans certainly have an interest in uh, mediating uh mediating <laughs> the breakup of this um, country, which um, they're all very oppressed yeah. and have been suppressed. So uh, again again implying common. that it would be a pardon.
1: What he's just said essentially is true for any federation. You lose mm-hmm. a war and it is very difficult for the uh, successor state to hold federation together. It would be the exact same for the United States. If they lost a war, how would a federal a federal American government hold, keep Texas, keep California? How would it stop any of these states seceding? The exact same would be for Britain. How would they stop Northern Ireland from leaving now with the stop, Scotland from leaving after we we badly lose a war.
3: Mm-hmm. He's not saying anything
1: particularly profound mm-hmm. other than stating the obvious. It's just that the, the salivation at the mouth is the well,
0: yeah, around yeah.
1: what he's getting from, from this idea of Russia collapsing and us being able to move in and get the move, get the Chechens to rebel, and then we can move right, in, right, in. Right, right,
0: right, 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 right. Exactly. So, I mean, it also seems a bit foolish of him to actually. Knowing that people like us will be watching this, um, <laughs> you think that he would have just skipped the mention of energy infrastructure. I yeah. mean, that's just oil pipelines and oil refineries, and uh, gas, of course, but still, um, and then massives of resources. He didn't need to say that. He could have just said, we yeah. need to be concerned about the nuclear weapons. And of course, the refugees, and and that no conflict would break out. All yeah. you need to say, he didn't, you know, it, it was quite Freudian you know, yeah. slip. Yeah, like oh, the the masses of resources. I mean, I mean the the refugees. Uh, I mean, yeah. You know.
1: Yeah. <laughs> actually, they actually called it balkanization. Like that's
0: right, 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 right. In right, a right. positive.
1: Well, like that's usually something that.
0: <laughs> yeah, and and then also then then it also leads you to think sort of like, well, hold on, if you think that this could lead to the breakup of the largest land country in the world, which has the largest stockpile of nuclear weapons, and there would be war and potential breakup of reunions and refugees, shouldn't this go into the calculation of of the current Ukrainian conflict too? Uh, If you think that's gonna happen, if you think that we might have to deal with the biggest nukes in the world being willy-nilly handed around by all sorts of, uh, I guess, fanatics, Chechens and other nationalists, that's not a... That's a really bad... That's way yeah. worse than anything we've ever had to deal with, ever.
1: Going missing, nukes being taken over to borders by, by groups. That, you, know, you know, Within years, you'd have groups like the Taliban having old Soviet yeah. Nuclear weapons.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then also, if, if, if this is what this guy's opinion is, and the Chinese are listening to this, and they are sitting on the border of that huge country, yeah. they're obviously... I mean, this would... This would sit in panic down your, yeah. the, the, you know, you know, that, sort of instability that on, chaos could happen on your board. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. Um, then I think, do I have another one for him? Uh, yeah, the other stuff he says, uh, they ask him, you know, will the West come in? He says the West will only come in if Russia does something very stupid. So if they attack a NATO member or if they use nuclear weapons, um, he says that, you know, basically he, he does emphasize the West is not going to intervene at this point uh, and there's something really drastic happens. Yeah. Um, and then he just reemphasizes that they're going to win as long as we keep sending money, as long as we keep NATO together, as long as we keep our, our alliances together. Um, I'll jump to Petraeus uh, just to quickly just give you his views as well. He also says some pretty crazy stuff. Um, so one moment. There, we go. there he is Well, Petraeus. Uh, so if you're not familiar with who Petraeus is, also a big general um, in the U.S. also, and was the ex-CIA director. This guy was in charge of, he was a general in Iraq and then CIA director after that. So let's listen to what he has to say.
6: Fundamentally shifted, Jim. And, you know, I'm normally fairly guarded and uh, cautious mm-hmm. about this, but the tide clearly has turned because the success of this offensive, As important as it is itself on the ground, what really is important is that it reflects a hugely important development, a new reality, that Ukraine has been incomparably better than Russia in recruiting, training, equipping, organizing, and employing additional forces, while Russia has been struggling to do just that, literally running out of soldiers.
0: Okay, not particularly interesting, just saying the same stuff, that this offensive is amazing and it's blown away and oh my god it's it's, it's a, the best thing that's ever happened i'm going to jump ahead to something which he says which is quite quite funny actually um one second
6: soldiers ammunition they left behind stayed in power for two years this is going to be a terrible this is just mm-hmm. How does it, is it worse than Afghanistan? Remember, they left Afghanistan and the, court, the government they left behind stayed in power for two years. This is-
0: So <laughs> Petraeus thinks it's a good idea <laughs> to talk about the terrible uh, withdrawal of Russian or Soviet troops from Afghanistan. And the government only lasted two years. I mean, does this man not see the sort of blatantly <laughs> <and> ridiculousness <thing? laughs> of so, of mentioning a failed withdrawal from, Af- from Afghanistan.
1: <laughs> and how long did the government last, though? And they. How, how long did the government security? last? Yeah. Days.
0: <laughs> days. I mean, I don't. I don't. Te- technically, it was never on its own feet. So no. they never withdrew. It never lasted. It was gone before they left. It left before them. Um, yeah. So yeah, because
1: it was American troops helping the refugees out, wasn't it? After the right, president. Right. 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 Yeah. No. Um,
0: yeah, the Afghan government left before the US The the NATO troops did. Uh, so yeah, <laughs> um, <laughs> just another one. Then, of course, uh, Petraeus also mentions the chips. He goes into this thing about chips and microchips of weapons that um, the Russians are going to run out of. To be again, I can't answer that right now. I, I think we've discussed it briefly. They're, China produces some, but China also imports. So yeah, I can't answer it right now. Maybe, maybe. Um, just to, to to counter all this stuff here. Uh, yeah, and I just want to check, does he mention, just going to jump ahead. I do think he mentions also, I should check again at 259, whether these guys can also take Ukraine. Let me just take a check here one second.
6: The weapons, and of course, you noted the latest announcement about that. I'm confident we will continue to do everything that they need uh, to help them build on the momentum that they have now achieved okay. uh, and carry them all the way through to, to victory, frankly. So let me ask you your read of Putin's next move here, because, for instance, beyond the losing the ground that Russia...
0: I don't think he says it there, so I have to excuse my my mistake there. I'm not sure if he does say it. But nonetheless, uh, there is, you know, the the first general who says that they could take back Crimea. Um, So, yeah, those are the the comments from generals coming out right now, the two two generals saying that, uh, you know that it's all amazing, and this offensive is the end of the war. Basically, the, the war is over. Um, they'll be home by Christmas.
1: Yeah, um, I don't think that's going to be the case. Uh, what I think is going to be the ca- going to happen more likely, like the previous general we watched, where he said all this fan fiction was all on the condition of if we stay together. Um, the hard fact is we're not staying together. Uh, the government's of the EU can't agree. Uh, it seems like political momentum is drying up. I've got another little article here. Um, if you could just pull this one up.
0: Yes. Which one is it?
1: The
0: Zelensky spy chief one? No, this one. Okay, you just send it. Okay. Okay, one second. Ah, yes, I know this one. Okay, got gotcha. you. Yeah.
1: So, there's been protests as of this. What is this dated? 2nd of September. So, a huge protest in the Czech Republic. Uh, interestingly, the, the narration that I've seen Ax says it in. Hush tones of far left and far right coming together like it's a bad thing. Um, what I read is normal working class people who are feeling the pinch. Who are saying that why are we paying this money? We can't gotcha. afford. It it's, we we should be neutral. Um, when we had a chat yesterday, Rich actually pointed pointed this out. Obviously for our viewers who know which is in is in Vietnam and I'm in Stoke in the UK. Uh, it is currently September and I have a woolly jumper on because we can't afford to put the gas on at the moment. This is now becoming a reality that is hitting home. The goodwill that people had back in February and March has run dry. It's hitting our pockets. We're getting gas bills in the thousands mm-hmm. and This is like a geopolitical game of knuckles. All Ukraine needs to do is say we're neutral. And all we need to say is we're neutral. Mm. We don't even get our gas from Russia. We get our majority of our gas from Kuwait. A lot of this Mm. seems artificial. The fact that these billionaires are still racking up profits like this, and then we're paying for it. This isn't our war. We didn't cause Mm. this. We shouldn't be paying for this. And I think there's a current that is being suppressed by the mainstream media. They're choosing to not report on the true public feeling. They're trying to drive the narrative by saying people support them. You can't even see, Boris Johnson's gone now, but this Trust has carried on, carried on this tradition of always wearing the pin of the cross right. union jack and the Ukraine flag, just to constantly remind us that that's there, given statements like, oh, don't worry, the people of Britain don't mind that you haven't asked us. And when you do ask us, when you ask the people of Czech, mm. Czech Republic or the people of Germany, you get responses like in that article and you don't want to hear it. And I think that's, what's going to, yeah. that's going to be the straw that breaks this camel's back, I believe. Hmm.
3: Hmm. Hmm. Hmm.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I think when we will actually know the full sort of scale of this, when, when winter really comes. So in about, I think about six weeks, uh, when it starts getting cold across Europe, uh, we'll start seeing the effects. I mean, perhaps another episode we can talk about the long term effect of gas and stuff like that and heating, uh, because the economics of the war is another side to it. Um, but I think we've done a pretty good cover of the main events of this last six yeah. months. I don't know if we're gonna cover anything else, Chris, or if we're good for for, for tonight.
1: I, I think I think we're good. I think we can we can leave it another six months hopefully and then
0: Yes, yeah. Hopefully we'll so yeah, yeah. I mean, we'll be back next week if, if indeed this uh, in this uh, the offensive keeps rolling and uh, you yeah. know Russia's pushed back, we will report on it. We will we'll cover it, and uh, let's just hope that things don't turn out as Lieutenant General Hodges wants in terms of the break, of <laughs> Russia and dishing out of nuclear weapons across some chaotic new Russian war zone. Yeah, um, yeah. So let's hope that doesn't happen. Cool. So thank you very much, Chris, and thank you very much for watching. Very we'll catch me. you next. Time. next I'll see you And that is it for this episode of the Marxist Think Tank. Catch us every other week here on SoundCloud. To allow us for our reporting and our content to remain independent, please consider donating to our Patreon and becoming a voting member in the link down below in the description. If you have a news tip or would like to talk to us, please email admin at marxistthinktank.org. Our editor is Sean Sanchez. News writer and producer is Reggie Truman. And I'm Oscar Bastille.